Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 127 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. My guest this week is James B. Stockdale II. Jim has worked in public education for many years, including as an independent school headmaster, a public school district superintendent, and as a distinguished educator for the Pennsylvania Department of Education. He's also the son of U.S. Navy aviator Admiral James B. Stockdale. Admiral Stockdale was shot down over North Vietnam in September 1965 and would go on to spend more than seven years as a prisoner of war in Hualo Prison, better known as the Hanoi Hilton. While there, not only did he persevere without breaking in the face of torture and interrogation by his captors, but he did something that shouldn't have been possible, and something that was one of America's most closely guarded secrets for decades afterwards. He established covert communications with naval intelligence and the CIA, and created a spy ring within the prison itself. I invited Jim onto the podcast to discuss his father's years of imprisonment during the Vietnam War and the espionage network he formed inside the Hanoi Hilton against all odds. But before we dive into this story, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who is also supporting me here on Patreon, including Cameron W. and Matthew S. Your monthly contributions there help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. Jim, thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this actually not long this time. Oftentimes, (laughs) it takes me months to get in contact with someone and, and schedule an interview, but it didn't. In this case, it was just a few weeks, but I've been looking forward to it right from the beginning, honestly, ever since I watched this documentary, which featured an interview with you called The Spy in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, and I was determined to talk to you after that, honestly. So I'm very glad that we were able to get together so quickly. That's good. I hate that title, by the way. Oh, um, really? Really? Did you have an alternate to suggest by any chance? No, no. But Smithsonian Channel's owned by something, some Showtime, and Showtime's owned by CBS. So some guy in a desk at New York came up with that <laughs> title. Kind of a provocative. Oh, wow. Anyway. I can, I can imagine. Yeah, marketing guy came up with it. I'm sure there's like echelons and echelons involved in the production of something like this. Well, guess. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's all right. So, Jim, I'd like to start and just go back to your childhood before everything occurred. Can you talk about what it was like just growing up with your father, your memories of him and all that before he actually deployed uh, off the coast of Vietnam? Sure. We were a Navy family. We had moved to Coronado, which kind of is perceived by many people as paradise. But we moved there when it was paradise, when it was nothing but a little sleepy seaside town waiting to be invaded by real estate agents. And dad had, I think... uh, Apropos of what we're discussing, Dad had just spent two years at Stanford getting his master's degree in international relations and studying a variety of things, comparative Marxist thought and ancient 
philosophy of, of Stoicism. But we were there. We were those were in Coronado. We had a the standard tracked three bedroom, two bath house that most Navy families wind up in unless they live on the base. And a year after that, we moved into a house that reminded my mother of her native New England there in Coronado. And that would have been the, that was the 12th and final Navy house we had. But we were, before going to Stanford, we lived in half a Quonset hut outside the gate at Alameda. <laughs> you know, you bang around and you get a real range of, of different locations. But there's always a focus on, of course, in our case, the father, his sometimes dangerous career. It, it was prototypical. Mom read the Navy wife when she got married to dad. It was standard. I think my favorite memories of dad were when he was at Stanford because he went up from that Alameda Quonset hut. He went out and found a ramshackle hacienda up in the back of Los Altos Hills with 20 acres of eucalyptus trees and, and grape arbors <laughs> and an old mare named Babe who could ride bareback if we kept her shot in water. So that that was really my boyhood paradise. Dad came to every one of my little league games, even though I only played the last two innings in right field. It mm, was it was amazing. a place it was a place where we really came together and had time to be together. So we were close, but we were attentive to duty when moving to Coronado, Dad took over a VF fifty one, a squadron of FAU Crusaders. He had flown the original West Coast Crusaders from Love Field in Dallas out to California when we first moved there, up more in the San Francisco, Oakland area. It was all about and around that. My favorite part of the day or the week or whatever was on Saturday morning, Dad would kind of clap his hands and say, it's time for Jimmy and me to go do some errands. And boy, I would sit up and we'd go out and get in a junk car. He always had a junk car. <laughs> and we always we would always wind up somehow, amazing, at a ship or a, or a an overhaul and repair facility or a ready room in a hangar, just checking in. But that was, I, I still remember the smell of the ready room at Moffat, you know, Naga Hyde, cigarette smoke and coffee. Just, mm. ah, okay, this is where the work happens. <laughs> mm -hmm. But one, one morning he, we went out there and not to get too involved in the story, but just a glimpse of my boyhood. I was a first or second grader and somebody came in and said, hey, they're doing touch and goes down at the end of the runway with the brand new F8 two or three or something. Everybody stood up and we, we actually, dad said, dad said, you stay close to me. And we went out and got in a couple of Jeeps. Everybody piled down to the foot of the runway and we would watch them come in. And the, the, the modification that they had made made it easier to fly on, to land on carriers. You know, the, the wing would kind of lift up and give them a little more glide path. But so, so we're down there and he put me on the hood of the Jeep and my back against the windshield. He said, don't move. And this you know, big plane roared in, bang, the tires hit the runway and screeched the tires. And he dumped JP4 jet fuel into the back and went into afterburners. And it was just bang, zoom. And all of these, you know, 30 year old aviators were cheering and yelling and carrying on. And I, I look back on that and I think, you know, I'm a lucky boyhood in oh, many man. ways, you know, just, <laughs> but that's, that's wonderful. That's the background. Yeah, it sounds unforgettable, honestly. Well, it stayed with me. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can tell. Um, so, go ahead. He deployed, I understand, I guess in, in what, like mid 1965, roughly, is that right, to go out to the waters off of Vietnam? There were three cruises in Coronado. One of them was the first cruise where he was the executive officer of VF 51, and then he took over VF 51. 
and a squadron. I'm sure your audience knows parts of this. About 15 airplanes and about a dozen pilots. That's how many are in a squadron, and there are seven or eight squadrons on an aircraft carrier. But in the, the cruise, the original cruise was on the Ticonderoga in 1964, and it, it may help your audience to know, if they don't already, that Dad was the senior flyer in the air on August 2, August 4, and August 5 over the Gulf of Tonkin. He went into on August 2 when there was a real attack by some PT boats on the uh, USS Maddox, and they were out shooting at a spar, you know, t- kind of target practice, and they got he was told to switch to strike control. They went over and they shot up a couple of those boats and, and, and went home. And that was all there was to it. And you would think that would have been the provocative incident that led us into the Vietnam War, but it wasn't. And when you're finished thinking about it, it you can't start a war in Washington on Sunday. And it was a Sunday. Oh. So, so on Monday, everybody came having heard that this happened. And then on the 4th, not that this is in everyone's memory the way it is mine, the the PT boats supposedly attacked both the Maddox and the Turner Joy on the high seas. And Dad flew out there and he looked forever and there he, he came back and he said there were no boats out there, no PT boats at all. And he, he sent that by flash message back to Washington, said no boat sighted, nothing physical there. And the guy who was in charge of that destroyer squadron had sent a message almost simultaneously that said, really no physical sightings of any boats at all, making all this attack rhetoric seem perhaps there, it may be that not, not much really happened, (laughs) but we were already uh, for war, of course, precipitously, Robert McNamara got everybody organized and started sending huge amounts of hardware and uh, battalions of men to Southeast Asia to get ready to fight the war. He was determined mm-hmm. to, to fight. Lyndon oh, helped man. too, though. I mean, just, just right. <laughs> so. right, right. Understandable. So that's, this was the Gulf of Tonkin incident that was yes. vastly overstated back in the United States in it the following days. I invented. Guess, right? Invented. invented. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. It's just, sure. you know, something had happened a couple of days before, but that wasn't good enough for him. So they fictionalized it. Um, gotcha. and, and, and my son-in-law has a way of putting it that I've never forgotten. He, he had done some research before he came into the family and he said, what was amazing was what your dad did in North Vietnam. But more than that, it was what he did with what he knew in prison for those years, because the the fulcrum for the war was based on uh, false reports. Okay. I got you. So not, not to skip ahead too far, but if he had revealed that information or set it on, on film, I take it that would have been horribly disastrous for the U S perception or the the public's perception of the war, which is already bad. Well, and, and he's under orders in the Navy. I mean, they can't share that secret information there. They can't talk about that in public. I mean, dad did come home, it was very strange. Um, any any Navy people will, will say this was strange. Dad's father was dying of emphysema in his hometown in Illinois. And Hutch Cooper, who was the captain of the ship, knew Dad and knew he was an only child and had a special relationship with his dad. Hutch arranged for Dad to travel halfway around the world to what turned out to be the funeral of his father. But he got to stop in March Air Force Base in Southern California for about 18 hours. So absolutely unheard of on a nine-month cruise for a Westpac ship. 
dad was home in the middle of a cruise and he called hmm. his best friend's mom's best friend and Bud Salzik, who's a retired captain in the Navy. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I kind of surreptitiously sneaked. My bedroom was in the basement and I sneaked up the stairs on the pretense of getting a glass of water or something. But I listened to dad tell the story. He wanted to tell mom and the Salzigs the true story of that night because he was going to go back into what could be dangerous territory and he didn't want he wanted at least a few people to know what really had happened listening to that as a 13 year old i didn't know what a lot of it meant but i knew what the word lie meant later he and i and mom and i would talk about that so so kind of an that's a lot of background Sorry if some of it's peripheral, but no, 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 no. Yeah, that's exactly what we're here for, honestly. So I appreciate that. That's that's it's a huge amount of insight into his character and his his desire to see the truth prevail, no matter what, regardless of consequences. And I know that that's going to come up later on uh, a little bit as well. Fair enough. Yeah. So he went back. You said there were three cruises. So when Ah, was the last time that you saw him before the actual shoot down occurred? Well, he came back home and then he took over as a carrier air group commander on the Oriskany. That's kind of the apex for naval aviators who are still flying. And dad loved to fly. (laughs) He loved to fly. And he'd work for carrier air group commanders who didn't fly very much and thought of themselves as sort of administrators. But dad flew every kind of airplane that was on the ship, leading. He figured it was his job to, to... be with his men, share with them what he knew. And that was the cruise. Two days before they were to go to uh, R&R in Hong Kong, he was shot out of the sky, parachuted into a little village near Than Hua, and he was pretty damaged, had broken some bones in his back, and he was sitting, he remembered, he remembered on, a, on a dirt road, and he's, his legs were kind of splayed out in front of him in a V, and he looked over at his left knee, and it was... Uh, 45 degree bent laterally. So he was pretty, pretty well banged up from there. He had a, like a four or five day ride in in various vehicles to Hanoi, you know, and he spent the night in one house and a guy came in with a gun and tried, you know, very angry at the, you know, the American pilot that was dropping bombs on their country. But he got to, he got to Hanoi. Okay. And that was the beginning of the seven and a half years. Okay. So when he was parachuting down, was he seen, like, were they waiting for him when he landed on the ground? Um, I mean, I I guess with that knee injury, there's not much chance of evading. He couldn't evade, but he was not in a populated area at first. And it was, the concern was that because of the camp or the national radio that played on speakers in even remote areas of the country, people were whipped into a rage. And when they saw him coming down, they came over and dad said it was a bunch of, you know, Street punks was kind of what he said, uh, Americanizing it. And he said, those guys would beat the hell out of you. What you really want to see are the Vietnamese officials wearing pith helmets and blowing whistles because they would clear that crowd out. And the word was out to to save these guys because they were going to be worth their weight in gold. Do you recall, had anybody from that area group, had they already been shot down? Like, were there already prisoners by that time? Did he join other Americans once he made it actually to the prison? He did, apropos of our work, the second guy to be shot down over North Vietnam was Bob Shoemaker in February of 65. And dad was about the 35th shoot down. So so there were a lot of guys down, not necessarily in the same locations, but 
they were all later to converge on the Hilton. <laughs> so, so it's called. I actually, oh not that this makes a difference, but you know, when dad got involved in, well, awkwardly got involved in politics in 92, I actually had a reporter call me one night and say, now, is it true that prisoners stayed? Is there really a Hilton hotel in Hanoi? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, I said, oh, listen, my, my friend, please do a little research before you call me back. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> yeah. But it was Wallow was the name of the prison, which means fiery furnace. And it was used, it was a French built prison. And instead of barbed wire, they had shards of champagne bottles stuck in the tops of the walls, broken. It's where they kept many, many civilian prisoners. And in fact, during the first year dad was in Wallow, there would be these sections where, you know, men and women who had been incarcerated by the Vietnamese courts were, were also spending time. Hmm. My gosh. Kind of so what were those first few days like? Did he have any hope of rescue initially, or did he understand that he would be there for quite some time? He thought that while he was being driven up those four or five days, and of course he first to admit that he was, you know, delirious, but he thought he smelled the sea. And at one point he thought, oh, the reason this is taking so long is they're going to, they're going to, you know, meet, meet us with a little boat on the shore of the gulf and i'll be rescued and of course oh. that was just kind of in his mind but now you pull up to the gate and it says maison centrale over the door and it's it's intimidating and when you go across there's a moat a dry moat to again a double wall around the prison you walk through the moat and then you walked into an area where there was an administrative office but straight into a place called what the prisoners labeled heartbreak which was where they'd put you on a cold soak for three or four weeks and keep you alone and really not do much to you until they decided you were ready to talk to somebody. And after three or four work weeks, you, you're you looking for a friend. It was all calculated to try to help make you dependent on them for survival. Yeah, yeah, I see. I guess they had a, quite a bit of practice at that point already, not just with the other Americans, but with the... Where, did they treat the Vietnamese the same way? I should ask. I, them. Yeah, I, I don't think I, you know, I really don't know. That's true. Yeah. I, I've seen pictures of the Vietnamese, the prisoners, the civilian prisoners in Wallow, and they all wore a kind of a, a, a block, a, like a picture frame around their necks, which was the way they controlled them. They'd just run a rope through all the different picture frames that were around the necks of the prisoners. And then they would, you know, that was a controlled device. I just thought that was mm. kind of interesting. Instead of yeah, handcuffs, yeah. you just, you know, corralled them by the neck. Wow. He said that he said there were also, he said it was strange. There were at one point he thought there was a family in one of the cells and they were cooking a little dinner or something like that down the way. And he would smell that and think, wow, that's fascinating. And who knows? It was probably the wife of one of the guards or someone who had brought mm, something yeah. in. Yeah. I'm but, sure it was hard to know what was really going on with that uh, very, very limited ability to observe, you know, what was around him at the time. Yeah. So Jim, and, back home, what did your family learn about him? I mean, how long was it before you knew that he had survived the shoot down? About three months later, a guy who was uh, a couple of numbers above dad named Bob Baldwin called mom and said, Sybil, this is not official. Um, but they were translating a, a copy of the paper Pravda in the Soviet Union. And it mentioned a tall, dad was not tall, but by Vietnamese standards, he could have been 
tall, tow-headed, usually means blonde, but his hair was gray, prisoner named James Stackdale. You know, it was kind of a corrupted mm. spelling, but that was <laughs> that was plenty. Still no confirmation. We really didn't know he was alive on the ground until April of the next year. Oh my gosh. Um, when we got two letters in the same day in our mailbox in Coronado. It was really rather remarkable. <laughs> and looking wow. back, we just opened them up and started looking at them and, and read them over and over again. And we'll get into the, you know, right away, you know, it's not double speak, it's just double talk. But Dad wrote in that first letter, we think of Hanoi, or we think of Vietnam as a tropical country, but in the winter it is cold and dark even at noon, which is a, a direct point, kind of a double talk reference to Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, which was the story of a Soviet gulag and one of the prisoners there who survived over time. But if if, if we'd known how really similar <laughs> Dad's conditions were to that to that novel's descriptions, it would have it would have scared us. Hmm. But he they, that was his point in mentioning it was they even in the gulag they used the tap code. I mean, they, it was it was I don't know what the Cyrillic alphabet how that fits into it, but they had a tap sequence and it talked about the torture that was going on there and so forth and so on. Hmm. I see. So these letters that he was able to write were they carried out by the the, the Red Cross or something like that? I mean, I'm surprised that he was able to write anything at all, honestly. Exactly, and as were we. And but there was there, one was written around Christmas time, and another one in January. And we received them in April, but there was no carrier. There was no. There were Vietnamese stamps on them, and they came. the The letter carrier delivered them to us like they were, you know, circulars from the department store or something. I mean, they just went in the mailbox. Sometimes that happened. This was before people were carrying letters back and forth and so forth. It, it was just. Wow. wow wow and um Absolutely. and that was when mom followed directions and let naval intelligence know she'd received correspondence and a couple of guys came over from the san diego office and looked them over with her and asked her some questions and that was the beginning of kind of the the communication uh, okay so, so did to your knowledge now, anyway, did naval intelligence only learn that he was definitely alive through those two letters, or did they already have indications before then? Oh, and besides the Pravda article, I mean. Yeah, I don't know when intelligence decides it's for real. It's hard to say when there's a confirmation, but but we knew that they believed something because the, the two ONI officers came over. And they asked mom to read the letter over. And if there were any sections that seemed not to make sense, they needed to know. So she studied the letters. And of course, there were a few places where he referred to people by a first name or a name that he, from his hometown or something, tell Bobby Tom and so forth and so on. Well, Bobby Tom Jenkins was a kid he grew up with. And that was Harry Jenkins, who had been the CEO of VF uh, 63, I think. He was in prison with dad. There was a way to drop, give them names of people he was communicating with by tapping the prison, but who, to confirm that they were also there. And, but that was pretty, it was straightforward enough for ONI, but it was, these were vague references to what was going on, but he's, mm -hmm. he had to be careful in the letters and not, of course he did, but they were long 
you know, front front and back on paper that looked prehistoric with a, a nib pen. And he just, he had the time to write them. And at that point, they weren't on a push for propaganda or anything. So that hmm. was the first indicator. Okay. So I take it that these letters were reviewed before they were sent. They were reviewed by the North Vietnamese, but was he allowed like unlimited writing privileges or something? I would assume he would be writing all day, every day if he could. Yeah. Just, you know, for holidays, things like that. And I don't know what the other day was. There may have been at the time, I think that certainly Ho Chi Minh and many of the North Vietnamese officials realized that these American flyers were going to have value, but they weren't quite sure how at that point. And they had, they were trying to take care of folks. The, the regime of uh, pumping for information hadn't been installed yet in most of the prisons. Well, there were only 35, 40 guys there. Um, uh, that all, that all kind of came a little later in the same places, but the, the brutality hadn't started. They were, mm. they were kept in leg irons at night, but, that nobody, nobody was really getting roughed up in what they called the quiz. Okay, okay, okay. That's interesting. I honestly assumed that that would have already been fully in place before he got there, but he was not really being questioned. He was just being held while they worked that out at a higher level. What to do? Yeah, I think that's my impression. That's vague for a lot of folks, and we had no way to research it after the war either. Everybody kind of scattered who were involved. A lot of the people involved in the administration of the prison were. They were not in hiding, but they weren't eager to be identified. But he was given this privilege to write. I think at Christmas there was a uh, that was a, a kind of a gift by them to to allow him to write one of these long, lovely okay. letters. Okay, yeah. That, yeah, so hmm. that was it. It's but no, there was no there there. was no torture regime established there. They hadn't figured that out yet. Okay, so yet is being the operative word, obviously. So so Jim, did your mother start? To, or did your family start to kind of cooperate with naval intelligence right off the bat? I mean, did she just want to send her own kind of heartfelt letters back to her husband at that time? Yeah, she had started writing once a month, even in October, November, before knowing, really having word that he was, we didn't know he was alive. She started writing as though he was alive and he hadn't received any of her letters when he wrote to us. But you wound up with what amounts to a, a six-month time break. I mean, we wouldn't get the letters for months after they were written. So we knew that he was alive as of, you know, some months ago. But but his, his original problems were medical, Justin. And mm-hmm. he was spoken to by the camp authority and told that, we, you know, we, in Vietnam, we have medical problems and we have political problems. And first we take care of political problems and then we take care of medical problems. So Hmm. the idea was we want you to write a statement or something like that or, uh, you know, be accommodating in some way. That never worked out that way. I mean, he never really got much medical attention. They put a big cast on his leg and a splint. He, of course, anybody who's seen any film of him knows he, he walked with a stiff leg all of his life because he said the he one of the insights he had he said those leg irons kind of helped me heal <laughs> he said because if they would wow. force straighten my leg out at night he said and it was painful at first but i realized he said i he said the human body is an amazing machine he said i watched that leg heal 
and that knee fuse on its own. There were a couple of times <laughs> as it was healing that he was put in positions where that he was afraid he was going to re-break it or somebody was going to re-break it. And of course, in the torture with the ropes and so forth, his personal torture guard who, and I have to say this, I'm sorry if it takes time, they only knew the, the prison personnel by names they gave them because prison guards wore no rank or insignia and you weren't permitted to know their names. And his torture guard was a guy someone had labeled pig eye because he had kind of a dead eye on one side. Hmm. But uh, pig eye in wrapping the ropes and so forth and so on, dad said he was very deliberate, but he was very careful about that knee, and, <laughs> which sounds incongruous. Huh. But he, he knew, it, you know, somehow he knew breaking, breaking that knee again would just send every, it would, that, that would not be productive in terms of providing a written statement or a confession. That would that would just send everybody back to the you know dad they'd call the doctor you know to try to keep him keep him alive hmm. but but that never happened because big guy was very dad said he was compact he was like a gymnast at one point much much later in the prison experience he helped big guy repair a door <laughs> that was oh, wow. you know one after one sunny afternoon there they were he said you know he kind of looked down at my leg and. He said, sorry. I mean, he was, uh, there was a moment there where they were kind of simpatico after the torture hmm. stopped. So, Yeah, they, they form of, a bond of some sort after yeah. so much time spent together, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And there was, a, a, he, Dad, Dad, he said, there was respect there. Dad was a, a very hard and tough resistor. And Pig, I'd seen a lot of guys in that situation, and most of them started to cry like a baby. But and Dad did eventually, but I think Pig Eye respected his toughness and the toughness of several other guys that endured that stuff. So, hmm. but Incredible but naval intelligence was involved from the jump, and after they had reviewed the letters and interviewed Mom, and Mom's a bright woman, Mom got a call from a guy named Bob Burroughs, who was in charge of the ONI office in the Pentagon. And uh, Bob invited mom to come to Washington after a while to sit down and talk about things. <laughs> that was the trip where mom bumped into Lorraine Shoemaker, who, who was the wife of the guy, who Bob, who was shot down in February. And Elaine Shoemaker said, yes, those are the people in Washington that they don't want us to, to talk about. And that was the, kind of her introduction into this sort of world of secrecy and communication. Hmm. So um, with naval intelligence involved, did they have anything specific that they wanted to convey to him right from the start? I guess they were very starved for information about him and the other prisoners as well. But well, you know, how wanted, do you get that through the system? Yeah. Well, they wanted to make contact and the original, when I say tap code, does that do I need to describe what that is? Probably I do. I've heard um, of it. Yeah, but please do. Please do. Okay. No, no. It's, you take the alphabet and you put it in a five by five box. And instead of, there are different ways to include or exclude because there are 26 letters, but C would also be K. And by hmm. tapping the row and the column of the letter, you could, you could one at a time 
communicate letters and they got very good at this and very speedy at it. They, they could go through walls and tap with their fingernails and guys would listen with their ceramic cups up against the wall and so forth. And it became the default as from what I know, it became the default communication system for Americans in prison. When you watch somebody who's done that for years, do it, it's kind of an amazing thing because they they're tapping almost indecipherably, but then somebody else across the room would, would say, okay, that's a K that's an L that's an M. Okay. Keep going. We'll, we'll get the message out here. We'll get it mm. straight. The call up was something that the Vietnamese couldn't mimic, and it was a shaving a haircut, and the guy on the other end would would go two bits. And the Vietnamese tried to mimic that, but it would kind of go something like this: would go, you know, I mean, there'd be this sort of attempt at at, at making it, but they didn't have that sort of natural. There was a rhythmic sense to it that when the Americans who were used to shaving a haircut two bits, boom, 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 I mean, that would happen right away. Hmm. And they'd get on the wall and start trying to communicate and, and learning the names, learning the names of other prisoners. They right away started to create a network and know who was there and who was not. Okay. Just even under the best of circumstances, that's incredibly time consuming. Can imagine, but they also had nothing but time on their hands. Right. And and they started, if you wanted to teach a guy the tap code and he was inexperienced, you started simply by saying one tap is A, two taps are B, three taps are, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that would take days, I mean, to, to try to teach someone something in that format. Because My was, gosh. Anyway. But you're right. They had nothing but time. And as long as they were left alone to try to figure it out, they could. There was also whispering under doors. I mean, you know, sometimes a a row of cells with the, the guard would step away or something and they could whisper under under their doors and say, hey, you know, hey, who's the, who's the, who's, who's that down in, in cell six? Hello. Hello. Who are you? Tell us your name. And of course, the prisoner, the, the pilots, were the air aviators were told, don't don't communicate. They'll they'll trick you into doing things. So some guys would just not answer. And I remember one time Harry Jenkins whispered under the door. He said, he won't tell us. He must be in the silent service. (laughs) But there was, there were, those were very rich opportunities. You always had to have a guy watching the shadows to make sure a guard wasn't going to come in because that was verboten. And you'd be put in solitary and like irons for a couple of weeks if you got caught. Mm -hmm. So I I take it, it was incredibly rare if if ever that they were actually together face to face in a room or anything like that that just was not really happening very regularly no no the first four or five years never my gosh, i mean very five years well i mean that was there were other camps where there was more group activity there was the plantation which was kind of the show camp and that's not really fair because that wasn't a holiday but that's where they kept the prisoners that John McCain was in the plantation where they would, when they wanted people to be depicted as healthy prisoners, the setting was the plantation. And then there was the zoo. There were about 12 different prisons where, and sometimes they just run out of room and they'd have to open up a a warehouse or something, but they'd keep them separated. That was the standard procedure. Okay. Okay. Gosh, that's gotta be, even knowing that you're around, just not seeing a fellow American, and that kind of circumstance, it, I, it's hard to imagine, really. It's hard to imagine the stress that those guys were under. Well, uh, but so many of them endured so yeah. much of that and more. Well, they did. And um, 
after after coming home, they conducted an informal survey um, among those who had been there for more than five years. And they said, which was worse, solitary confinement or torture? And and everybody wrote back, oh, no contest, solitary. After about, and the estimate was, it, I mean, and, and it, this isn't just, you know, you can hear the noises coming. This is absolute solitary. I mean, you're just shut away from anybody. Hmm. After about six weeks, they figured six weeks was the break point. That was the point when almost anybody would start breaking down or looking looking for somebody to talk to or something like that. It was mm-hmm. more, it was, how should I put this? That was more uh, a more better useful tool than even some of the torture that was used hmm. because the torture was it was it was horrible, but once you went through it, I mean, and <laughs> some of the guys would admit that you know the first scream was the loudest, but it was the terror, it wasn't the pain, it was the terror of knowing that this could go on for a long time. Oh, wow. And it would talk about how they would be able to discern that. Um, in the night when it would come through some of the walls. So, so they were, it was a, it was harsh. It was rough, harsh treatment until, and I'll just say this in 1969, the Politburo realized they weren't making any progress. What they envisioned was treating Americans and trying to condition them, make them reasonable, give, give reasonable testimonies about the case the North Vietnamese wanted made in the international community about, their their sovereignty and how it had been invaded and how the American war was a war of uh, imperialist aggression and so forth and so on. But they they weren't producing that, you know, they, because the prisoners were organized and by and large they prevented that from happening. Hmm. All of this through the tap code communication, they kind of stood together even separately like that. Is is that correct? Yeah. Yes. My gosh. Yes. Amazing um, stuff. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, I just so you know, I mean, guys like George Coker and a couple of guys would be in a prison down by the river, down near the bridge. Coker and McKnight at one at one point in 67 broke out and tied themselves together with reeds down on the river and decided they were going to swim to the Gulf. (laughs) Wow. Well, you know, this is a these are these are brave guys and everything was everything went along okay for the first couple of nights as they started to swim down. They'd been it had been discovered that they'd left, but nobody thought they'd go out and swim, (laughs) but they did. And they were caught and brought back and beaten up severely and you know, made to pay for their transgressions and they were not appreciating the good treatment and the benevolent treatment they were getting from the Vietnamese people. It was kind of a, oh, you know, some of this is backwards, but yeah. anyway, the, yeah. every, everyone knew that, you, you know, learn this tap code. That was one of the first things you had going on. And that, that survived a long period of time in our house, even 20 years later, you know, when people were going to bed at night, you know, you get a tap you know, shaving a haircut and, you know, God bless you, GBU, hmm. kind of their sign off at night. And they were, I think, these are, these were tough trained guys, but in those circumstances, they had real respect and real love for one another. It's hard to describe for people, but even through the tap, Dad said you could even read a guy's mood. 
<laughs> you could tell when he was downcast just by the way he was tapping. You, every tap, every every guy had his own distinct way of 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 tapping, and you could read into some of the ways that just in, and you, and Dad said sometimes when a guy was feeling particularly low, you'd be listening to him tap on one wall, and on the other wall, he'd be tapping to the other guy, saying, "This fellow next to me is in sad shape. He needs some bracing up. Start thinking mm-hmm. about it." I mean that that would mm-hmm. happen. So they formed a very intimate bond under those circumstances. Yeah, it's it's truly unimaginable having not been in those circumstances. <laughs> I take it though that once they got back there they stayed in contact for the remainder of their lives in in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. There were some some wrinkles there of course. A couple of guys there were some outlying camps where guys would uh devise their own set of rules for their behavior and um some who were taken in by the propaganda Mm-hmm. And then uh, brought into the general population where they'd be, <laughs> people would try to straighten them out. So you got a, 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 a probably a three or four percent of the prisoners would come in with a different perspective. And that was cause for some charges later after they came home. Oh, man. Which was, you know, its own nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. You can Sorry. imagine that your problems are not over once you get out under those well, circumstances, which is terrible one, to think about. Yeah, well, at one point, Mom and I were sitting in the breakfast nook, and Dad was in the other room talking to the lawyers about different things. There were two fellas that he thought needed some some course correction. And I was sitting there with Mom, and all of a sudden, she just burst into tears. And I said, Mom, what is wrong? What is going on? You know, she said, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. Other people are going to parties and parades, and your dad's stuck in the den talking to the lawyers. She said, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. But they they were okay. It was just, it was just kind of an insight into that homecoming thing that all looked wonderful, and it was. But there were wrinkles. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah, it's understandable, certainly. Now, knowing that, and I don't want to over, over guide it, but after mom did get involved with naval intelligence, she was given strings of numbers that she was to, there was a, it's really the tap code in reverse was the first code that I know mom was using. And let me add add with haste, I know of no wife or family member of any prisoner who ever really knew any code. They were told what to write in their own hand. Mom was trusted enough to, there was a a method whereby after the, you know, choose a number, after the 20th letter in a document, then that would start and each each letter, every third letter would start every third word would start with a letter that was associated with a number one through five. And so you'd go through and you'd write two, four, three, and so forth. But the challenge was that mom had to write letters where the third word always started with the correct letter so that the message would get through. The messages were not very, you know, you think, oh, this is secret. This must be something. But a lot of the messages that mom sent were, I, I was able to re- reverse engineer the code later. The only one I was able to, because <laughs> I had the letters and I had the messages and so forth and so on. But it, they were the messages were, were almost innocuous, mm-hmm. asking if dad knew if different prisoners were there. Here's one from, I can just pull these up after I, I got them done. Uh, who are your roommates? Do they receive mail? 
that would be very important. And then in other letters, just simply the word carbon, which was the next iteration of secret communication. But is Kosky a POW? I mean, that's the kind of message that would come through today. Okay. Just kind of housekeeping stuff, which was odd. Okay, I see. So these these letters in this iteration, anyway, they typically only disguised like one or two questions. I take it because they had to be scattered. The code had to be scattered throughout the whole body of the letter. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I see. And your your mom had a huge role in deciding what to write. Then she wasn't just given a script to write in her hand. Writing is that correct? No, she was given a string of numbers, and she had to write her letters so that every third word started with a letter that represented a numeral. She mm. never, she, Bob Burroughs would give her, they called it her, you know, I'm, I've got some correspondence from him too, where he says, I haven't, I've sent you your October string, which would be a string of numbers. And then she would, she knew how to use the, the key so that the, the letter that represented a number would always be right. But it was tricky. She'd have to think through so that she could start that third word with the appropriate letter, hmm. but she never knew what it said. Oh, wow. Like a yeah. double blind kind of thing, huh? Exactly, exactly. Amazing. Intentionally. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's, it's certainly sensible, but that's a huge amount of responsibility put on her shoulders, you know, for her husband. And she's also like, oh, well, we can't tell you this. You know, that's well, unfortunate. She, yeah, it was very, yeah. And and to give you an I mean, I don't know if these examples are helpful at all, but mom was living in Coronado with a lot of other aviators' wives. And at one point, one of the wives got received word that her husband had been shot down and killed. And there's a whole protocol for that where the insurance kicks in and, you know, you have to, there's a whole declaration of KIA and so forth and so on. And in one of dad's later letters, he reported that the fellow who had been reported killed was in fact in prison and performing admirably. Hmm. (laughs) And, and mom checked with O and I and they said you absolutely cannot tell her that, oh, no. that her husband's alive. I mean this got kind of it, it you know got awkward when it got close. That's the only way I know yeah. how to put it. My gosh. Keeping that from the family. Like yeah. I I do understand where they're coming from. Like how how else could they have, you know, learned that information other than potentially the you know right. letters going back and forth. But my gosh. Yeah. What a horrible was, sort of calculus yeah. to make. Well, yeah. And you know, it's, um, it wasn't unusual for wives to get that word and then try to carry on with their lives. And it, it, it got, it, there were some tough circumstances that evolved from needing to keep things secret, hmm. of course. I'll bet. Um, I'll bet. So, and as your, as your audience probably knows, Justin, the, the, the mechanism for continuous communication over long periods of time when you're dealing with codes and methods and so forth, is you're always working on the next method. You're always working on the next code, the next way to sneak a message out. And after the tap code kind of interpolation with the numbers came the carbon paper. And that's that was what, what you saw depicted in the reenactment we talked about earlier. Um, they had a kind of, people of a certain age like me, Remember when we used to have something called NCR forms, there were no carbon required forms and you'd press down hard on the top piece of paper and there'd be other pieces of paper underneath it where it would copy. And but the, the, in, at the toy factory, some of the intelligence agencies had worked it out so that if you pressed hard on the piece of paper, 
it would it would in fact convey a message invisibly until it was laced with black light or some chemical uh, solution or something. So a carbon carbon paper meant you can use this letter and put it put it crosswise on on the letter that they can see and write messages that we'll be able to depict that will rise out of that paper when it's soaked or put under certain light and so forth and so on. So that was that was the second iteration of communication home. Okay. So there's the the standard visible horizontal left to right writing and then once it's soaked there's some some vertical up and down kind of secret yeah. message there is that correct? Right. Well, almost like just turning it sideways. Okay. So okay. it wouldn't get confused. So you wouldn't wind up with letters under letters and so forth. And so you okay. just turn it sideways and and write, you know, dad at one point the message mom got was experts in torture 18 to 20 hours a day. Those here are, and dad just started writing names of guys. And I've since, you know, met up with three or four guys who say, you know, I really happy. You know, I, I later found out that my wife found out that I was alive because your dad wrote my name hmm. in carbon on this, you know, on a message. So, but everybody was trying to look out for everybody else in the prison system. Yeah, what incredible circumstances there. So, Jim, once this new iteration was put into effect, how did they notify your dad or how did he learn what the next iteration would be? Was it just through a, a series of previously coded letters like, hey, watch for something new or something like well, that? Well, yeah, that was in that was the reenactment in the film was the actual delivery of the letter. Mom wrote a letter. It's kind of an interesting, if you bear with me and edit as at, at will. But mom wrote a long letter to dad and a part of the letter said, what a surprise we had yesterday when your mother showed up from her home in Illinois and wanted to visit the Pacific. She thought she would take a swim and got in and had a good soak. Well, Mabel Stockdale would no more impulsively jump on a plane and fly to California than fly to the moon. And she mm -hmm. she had a conspicuous apprehension about seawater. <laughs> so her husband, or her little boy joined the Navy, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, but there was a picture of a woman, and I've got a copy of the picture that they used. And it did, didn't look, and, and, and Dad said right in front of the Vietnamese when they handed it to him, he said, that's not my mother. But but there was so much else going on <laughs> that he got back to his cell and he was kind of despondent. He said, what in the world is happening? And he, and one of the, on the back of the picture was written, I, I really love a good soak. And Dad thought, what is, what is this? And he and he threw it in, they had, you know, basically paint cans, rusty paint cans were their toilets. <laughs> he put it in his bucket and he thought that because that was the only moisture available at the time. And he tried to soak it to see if the picture was, had any special properties. And he got really disgusted and he tossed it, pulled it out of there after half an hour and tossed it on the cement bunk. And he said, I saw the corners start to peel. And under the photograph, the photograph was several layers of paper that he could peel off. And the message that was written under the picture said the paper that the letter that accompanies this picture is written on is carbon paper. Here's how you use it. <laughs> so he got a picture that he had to soak 
to Peel that gave him instructions on how to use the carbon paper. That that process was replicated a couple of times. My gosh, with a couple of guys. So that is such an ingenious, but also such a risky move. I think to take things to the next iteration, like you mentioned, and you know, thank God he was persistent with it and figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he realized this was going to be a long stay. One of the things that he carried with him from Stanford was a knowledge and awareness about communist methodology. And there was no reason in the world for them to hurry up and finish this war. <laughs> they had, in fact, I think the North Vietnamese benefited from sort of toying with the Americans in some ways during the war, because that was more destructive to the morale of the American military than almost anything else. Hmm. That said, all of the many, many sacrifices made by family members, were, it's just devastating. But, uh, you know, you have to wonder how, how did <laughs> they sort of snared us into staying for so long. And that was that was really pretty destructive to our self-respect as a country, I think. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing the <laughs> the levels of, of damage that they were willing to accept in order to hurt us in, in sort of an indirect way as well. Like they didn't have any bombers that were ever going to reach the East Coast, the West Coast, anything like that. But they could hurt us in other ways. Yes. Yeah. When you started to study things later, you realize that was a possibility. I, I, you know, so I don't, whether it was a strategy or a tactic or not, I don't know, but it, that's the way it felt a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, seven and a half years, I, I was in high school and college during those years and they were not tender times. They were not easygoing times at, on the college campuses. Oh just, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I bet you saw some things and heard some things that really had you gritting your teeth. Yeah, yeah. But don't forget, <laughs> I had listened into the conversation that really said we got into this by 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 kidding ourselves. Oh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. so I but and that I not that my story has any merit at all, but. There, there are times when people say, you know, said years later, well, why didn't you broadcast that? Why didn't you talk about the illegitimacy of the war? Why weren't you quiet? I said, because that'd be one sure way to, to get dad pinned down and, and hurt badly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So knowing what little I knew and I didn't know much, but I, I will say that after I was, I was working in a, in an iron foundry at one point and mom would work on letters at night. This was in her native Connecticut in the summer. She would fall asleep as she was encrypting the letters. And I would come in after the graveyard shift and I'd collect the papers and put them on her side table. And, but I mean, it was obvious that there was some sort of deep encryption going on. Bob Burroughs actually, mom said, I'm worried about Jimmy which is, of course, me. I'm worried about Jimmy because he knows all this is going on and they're implementing the draft. And Bob Burroughs turned around and handed her a card, a draft card that classified me as 2A, which was sole surviving son, and I was excluded from the from the draft. Oh, man. And, and she said, she, she, I said, well, I didn't ask for this. And she said, no, she said, Everybody knows you didn't ask for it. She said, it's just that it, it doesn't make any sense for you to be in the military at this point. And it, and that was true. I mean, that would have been a, <clears throat> a real tricky conflict to navigate. Yeah, yeah, man, that's hard to imagine. <laughs> 
So, I yeah, mean, your dad so in the, North Vietnam and you hypothetically potentially, you know, deployed right. to. South yes, Vietnam, sir. My gosh. Right. Right. Yes, sir, Sergeant. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, I mean, right. but let me tell you a story. So that was just non-productive. I mean, that was the level of my involvement, which was just as a, you know, <laughs> a member of the family who was, again, straightening up papers. Mom fell asleep trying to code. But that was too much to know at the time. <laughs> So you were pretty well aware, although you were never briefed or read on or anything like that. You just, you knew what was going on under the roof of the home, family home, yeah. kind of? Okay. Yeah. No, no, I was I never see. read in on anything. No, no, I was just support for mom and to give her that. I mean, she fell apart at one point in 1970. She decided she was going to move to Washington to be closer to the legislators and the Pentagon. And turned out that the legislators in the Pentagon were perfectly happy with her 3,000 miles away. <laughs> she fell into a deep, deep depression while there and had been given by her, her, her family pediatrician. I later was dismayed to discover when I came home for Thanksgiving that she'd been given some antidepressant stuff that was not doing her any good. It was Oh, man, unexpected side effects. Those were the days of the mother's little helper pills. Oh, wow. And different okay. things. So it was, but we all persevered and she moved right back to Coronado the next year. That was just, that was just mm -hmm. a dark, dark period of time. Yeah. The whole, the whole family is really suffering for that entire period. It sounds like. It was awkward. After a while, you just don't know if this is ever going to end. <laughs> is this the way we're going to yeah, play it out? So there yeah, was five, six years. I mean, who knows yeah. what's going to happen? Yes. So to your knowledge now, after the fact, anyway, were any other of the prisoners receiving the same sort of clandestine correspondence with the with the non-carbon paper from the, the toy factory that you mentioned? Well, there was a, a, a cryptography code even before the Vietnam War. Some of the guys who were the first in had been there. They had an encryption school. And I was told later that there was one up in Puget Sound and one in a corner of Alabama, probably Fort Rucker. And there were, and bright, thoughtful young officers would take two weeks out of their, where they were assigned their duty and, and whisked off to one of these schools where they would learn cryptography, a very sophisticated cryptography. And that code was carried in and became the mainstay for a lot of official and necessarily secret communication to and from Washington. And there was a, because only a few, the idea was that if you have a few guys in the prison that know this code, they can communicate. And that worked out, that worked out pretty well. Bob Shoemaker was one of those. He told me the story one time about how he would, he was flying for a squadron somewhere in the Northeast or something like that. And he got a call and he almost got in trouble with his, his boss because he'd been gone for two weeks and the boss didn't know about it. They were getting ready to write him up. And he said, because they couldn't talk about what they were learning or what they were, what they went for. But having that kind of organization in advance to teach potentially captured I mean, it was kind of, it was pretty far, you know, far-sighted that a certain a certain percentage of our population at risk, as they call them, mm -hmm. should know this code in case. And that code went on to become, after the torture regime was over, 
between in 69 and with the advent of 1970, instead of trying to separate everyone with the new regime of semi-humanitarian treatment, they brought all the prisoners together in a separate section of Wallo in what the prisoners called Camp Unity. So all of the prisoners were in one space in the middle of Hanoi. And that, you know, they were living, instead of being in, you know, two to a room on a cement bunk with leg irons and feeding machines, you know, all of a sudden they were in rooms that were larger with 15 or 20 bunks adjacent and they were all together. Now, at that point, dad and others organized and, and trained other people in the prison in the code. And they started sending messages to Washington, and they'd have 10 guys write page one of the message. They'd have 10 guys write page two of the message, 10 guys write page three of the message, and and that, this encrypted message. And then if one of the 10 of any of the pages got through, naval intelligence would sit down and analyze what they were, what they were telling them about hmm. treatment or who was there or that kind of thing. So you... you Dad and Howie Rutledge and Harry Jenkins and a number of guys organized that, and they organized that became the the way to communicate was to train more, which got awkward because some guys got trained and others did not. But they 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 had to do that in order to get messages out. And meanwhile, things were shifting around with the incoming the traffic that was incoming to Hanoi with different devices and so forth. You know, people would get a, a box of candy or something like that, and they'd bite in, and there would be a kind of a hard thing, and they'd crack that open, and there'd be a note in there or something. So hmm. that kind of stuff happened. Okay, so things are really ramping up then, it sounds like. Yeah, there was a lot of communication and a lot of social talk about the communication, <laughs> you know, because some, again, some people were trusted with this code, and some, for whatever reason, they had to decide on a percentage of guys that could know this cryptography before. And then yeah, before, they came, before they came home, they were all briefed. Never, never, never compromise that code, which okay. caused, which caused, and uh, Justin, just so you know, which caused a number of guys after they saw the film you describe in 2015, I, I got a lot of pushback on that from prisoners who I'd known for a long time. Really? Yeah, they were they were indignant about it, and and I said, listen, that's uh, you know the CIA. We had the assistant director of the CIA there saying that these methods and and so forth were no longer in use, and 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 but that didn't matter. They had sworn secrecy, and I mm-hmm. had somehow offended some of them by sharing what little, what very little I knew conceptually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this was about the most closely guarded secret in American intelligence at the time, wasn't it? It was. I actually had one of the school districts where I was the superintendent, an elementary principal, and Tara's husband worked for the FBI. And at one point he was in Washington for briefings with the FBI, and he called me very quietly from his hotel room later that day. And he said, Jim, he said, I just want you to know that I was with 200 other FBI officers and we heard a lecture where some people from the intelligence agencies said the most successful long-term communication they ever had in the, in the presence of hostilities was with those prisoners. And they described it for these FBI officers that uh, were getting the briefing. And he said, you know, he said, I never, ever 
knew any of that was going on. And I said, well, John, you know, now you do. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So, but that's, it does have a, a kind of a, a reputation about it that I don't need to talk about, but in those circles, it seems to have been a very kind of a groundbreaking period for them to sustain that. But they had a, how you say in the trade, a, a, a captive population. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. So I, I have to ask, how closely were these letters that they were sending out, were they being inspected? I'm, I assume that it's by a, a Vietnamese English speaking intelligence officer. Is he like reading every single letter very carefully and then sealing it back up and sending it to the families or anything like that to your knowledge? Well, you never sealed anything. You, you, you addressed the envelope and you gave him the envelope oh, of course, and the letter. Sure. But presumably that was the case. But when they brought everybody together, the, the volume of letter writing increased. Now, the, the answer to this from the Vietnamese perspective was to, dra- to come up with a form for writing letters. And there would be seven lines and you were supposed to confine your remarks to the seven lines. And right away, both the wives on one side of the Pacific and the prisoners on the other side sat down and put six lines between each of the <laughs> each of the <laughs> seven lines and would write on that. So the in order to try to contain the clandestine communication, the Vietnamese sought to sought to reduce the structured letter writing ability, and that didn't stop things very much because the code was was pretty thorough and and straightforward. Again, there would be these assignments at one point when dad got when when they they called it the head shed where the higher ranking guys were they just said we're going to st- everybody stop writing for 3 months <laughs> we've got to figure out who's writing what who's using what codes and, and and we we have to present a united front and we'll be able to correspond with washington much more effectively if we have this you know 10 guys writing page 1 10 guys writing page 2 and so forth and so on so that was a, a kind of a a wave of information came in from from North Vietnam and different methods of communication made it easier to communicate going back. Hmm. Um, Incredible. Yeah. Turned into a regular publishing house there inside. Really? That was kind of what they'd say. They're just the same way they said in the early years, the place would, you, if you were quiet at night, you could hear tapping going on throughout the walls of these awful prisons and he said and then later on you'd hear the the nubs of pens writing these <laughs> writing these letters and and using these vowel manipulations to try mm. to convey special messages so oh my it was it was unusual i have a well there were special debriefs on that after they came home but which were conducted by naval intelligence some of the the, the, the Something that you might find interesting is that I don't think there was ever any official connection between naval intelligence and the CIA. Bob Burroughs had a friend who worked for the agency and worked in what they called the toy factory. And they were they were engaged socially, and Bob felt at liberty to tell this guy, you know, maybe they're both in the same business, what the challenges were. And and the the fellow in the toy factory would do his regular duties all during the day, but then he would come back at night and work on these projects for the prisoners. Nobody at the CIA was aware that these two guys were kind of collaborating to invent these communication systems. It was really kind of a story of 
you know, a relationship that a lot of prisoners and their families appreciated later. It was a very real gesture of goodwill in otherwise cold-hearted Washington. I'll bet. I'll bet. I was just going to ask you that, actually, how much of this was like a joint operation? And it sounds like it almost was not at all, except for this one incredible, That's... talented volunteer. And And he then, as time went on, he was able to share with others. He had a comfort level, but, but it was never yeah. officially sanctioned as far as I know. <laughs> I don't think there was ever any memorandum of understanding that went between any offices. It was, these were just guys who were working to, to, to help out. And I, I always thought that was amazing. I've met a couple mm-hmm. of them and I thanked them. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, that's fantastic. And honestly, knowing how bureaucracies work just in general, the idea that he might have to come clean at some point. Hey, I've actually been working on a project for another organization using your resources right. in the after hours. You know, that's that's not going to be viewed well in that's most circumstances. That's a no circumstances. no, right? No no, yeah. that's a no no. Right? I don't know if there were any discoveries or anything, but it might. My heart tells me that if if somebody did poke around and discover something, all they would have to do is ask, and if he explained what it was, they'd say, "Keep on going. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Keep keep at it." That's part of the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly it certainly worked. They had tremendous effect working together like that, even if it was unofficially. And Jim, I wanted to ask you, right, the, the documentary you talked about, it actually opens with this incredible story about these the involvement of these SR-71 pilots. Can you tell me when and how that occurred exactly? Exactly when, no. But yeah, that is it. That was during the Nixon administration. And he, he ordered those. I mean, I think the president at the time was the only one who could order those planes to do anything. But yeah, they went halfway across the world. And, and the couple of sonic booms were a confirmation that will support uh, an escape attempt of some sort. And <laughs> I that was... I had when I say I got pushback on the film. I mean, I wasn't responsible for it, but I was the only one. A lot of those guys knew. They said that never happened. And then, you know, after a time, other guys would say, "Yeah, that did happen." That oh, did man. happen. And <laughs> and, that, that, <laughs> and the other one was the uh, were, were the tiny submarines off the coast. One of the reasons the film got made was because Mike Mullen, who would later be the chief of naval operations and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, one of his classmates at Annapolis was a SEAL and working in these clandestine circles. And Mike found out from the father of this fellow died out in the middle of the dark Gulf of Tonkin, trying to arrange for tiny submarines to be able to go up the river and meet up with groups of prisoners who were going to try to escape. Well, he died, and his father was given the explanation that it was a training accident. And Mike Mullen heard that story. When the opportunity came for him to uh, participate in the film, he said, I'll, I'll be happy to talk about it, but I'd like to include this portion so that this, this we can depict that this man died trying to save prisoners rather than a training accident. That's the way some of that works. But, but okay, Mike, yeah, was, I, re- I recall that portion, yeah. Which was a deal I, everybody was more than willing to make. I mean, you know, because he's a very, very, I have a, a just, Amazing respect for him. I would have, I would vote for Mike Mullen. <laughs> if he ever yeah, yeah I've, I've never met him or anything like that, but he certainly has a reputation. Yeah, yeah, very, very thoughtful guy. Wonderful, and and I and I think that's a testament to 
he was out of the Navy by that time, but he, uh, mm-hmm. he wanted, he wanted to document that father's loss in a way that was honorable. Man. Not something that happens as often as it should. Right. Right. Totally agree. So these, did the prisoners going back to the SR 71s, did they have any kind of foreknowledge that there would be a signal from the heavens, so to speak coming um, that day or that week? I think a couple did, but not many. I, you know, there were some who had some foreknowledge and they, they were on the very inside of the cryptographic chain and so forth. But, but it was, as it's depicted there in the film, you know, this big boom would come over and the prisoners would hear it, look up like, what's that? That people were, you know, that was a way to communicate. And I, I just, nothing really came of that as well as, as much as it, it was intended, but that, that really did happen and was kind of a, an amazing, amazing day for those who heard it. Yeah. Direct <laughs> order of the president. It's got to be the most expensive and high level signal of that type ever sent to anybody. I have to imagine. That's expensive is right. Yes. Yeah. It, I'm not sure those planes were doing much else at that point. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the missions were relatively limited from what I understand. Yeah. I mean, they just, they were too, it was too risky to fly them that often, if I recall correctly. I think you're right. So how did all this end? I mean, he came home after seven and a half years, but how did they get the signal that, you know, they would be exchanged soon? How did all that come? And they were, you know, know, ultimately reunited reunited with your family. Good, good question. The B-52s had a lot to do with that. (laughs) The Johnson or the Nixon administration just sent waves and waves of B-52s in and they never hit the center of any cities, but they would bomb on the outskirts and the rail yards and so forth and so on. And dad said, when that started, it was before the Christmas of 72 and, and continued for quite a while. But those, he said, you know, you're, even when you're miles away from those bombs being dropped, that much explosive, he said, you can feel the earth shake. He said, <laughs> he said and, and the guards, he said, when the guards would come in to talk to or to order us about, he said, you could see there was fear in their eyes. He said, <laughs> he said, this was a message that was conveyed with sufficient brutality to get people's attention. Then, so the prisoners had this idea, and then there were some gestures of kindness that would come through. You know, there'd be there'd be this accommodation, and some of the fellows who had been involved in the torture regime were invited back to the president, the, the, back to the prison, to have kind of these makeup conversations. <laughs> like there was too much animus. I mean, nobody was buying into anybody saying. We hope you'll remember that we were at war and we were all desperate, but that didn't go very far with with those prisoners. So they were happy to line up and get ready and go. But there was always the apprehension, Dad said, up until the point where we were lined up in a room and they'd given us a bag to carry. He said we were all hesitant and doubtful, but they got on those planes, came home. There was a kind of a little quirk in the middle of that because the medical folks wanted to keep the prisoners in the Philippines for two weeks to conduct, (laughs) to conduct thorough tests. Word of that got out. It wasn't 15 minutes before the Pentagon got calls about American wives making reservations to go to Manila. (laughs) You know, if you're not going to bring them home, we're going to come there. But then they, so they backed off and brought everybody home and got them kind of localized. And dad was at Balboa Hospital. 
And there were different hospitals all over the country where they were treated. I will say that that was one of the most important parts of my learning because I'd graduated from college. I'd been working in a steel mill to earn money to bum around Europe because in 1972, that's what college graduates did. Go out and learn about life. Well, dad came home and I was footloose and fancy free. And I was able to go to Coronado and be his cook and bottle washer, basically driving him back and forth to the hospital. And in the evenings, Justin, we would sit and drink red wine and he would tell me these stories. That'll grow you up. Hmm. I shared this with Porter Halliburton, who was a prisoner, still living, still a friend, wonderful friend. But Porter was a North Carolinian, and in order to put him through his paces, the North Vietnamese told him he was going to get a roommate. And their idea of making this difficult for him was his roommate was a very injured black American Air Force pilot named Fred Cherry. And the, the, somehow the Vietnamese had worked it out. So this would be a real test for this. And Porter and Fred, just Porter helped nurture Fred back to health. And they remained lifelong friends. So the experiment in uh, racial relations to try to perturb the uh, Yankee air pirates was a failure. I did, when, Dad, <laughs> when Dad told me that story, it was the first night he just cried. There were some wonderful, tender moments that I got to hear first and straight from him. And he let me sit in on parts of his debrief that were, you know, harmless. That was where he, I learned the story. Uh, it was straight from him, a couple of hours every night. Here's what we went through. Here's how we handled it, you know. But what came through for me was dad's real love for those. I'm sorry, Justin. I think <laughs> He'll get over it, you know, the, you know, the emotions will go away. They never will. About those guys really loved one another. You know, when you got old. So, that, but that was a good way to learn about it. And I don't think anybody else really had that kind of privilege. I've never talked to any other kids that had that opportunity. Yeah. But it Amen. was... It was Jim, that's, time, that's time, honestly, time, time well spent. <laughs> I bet. That's exactly what I've been wondering for, you know, this entire conversation is how do they hold it together that whole time through these, not just the terrible circumstances, but the length of time the, as the years yeah. stretch on and their kids, as you grew up, you know, from a boy into a man back home and they couldn't see you just get the occasional letter. Like, how do they get up every day and face the day? But it sounds like it was because of each other even if yeah. they couldn't see each other for the most Oh, part. yes. Oh, yeah. No, no. That was, you're not going to get in the middle of those relationships. That's real affection there and real respect for one another. Yeah. Nobody else would ever be able to understand them like yeah. they understood each other after that, I'm certain. That's true. I think you're right. My gosh. So, so with all the time you spent with them, what were some of the, like, the obvious changes to you? Because you both changed tremendously in the interim, I'm sure. Well, we had, but we came together just tongue and groove. It was like 
we did there was no no need to construct any rationale or any rules for for being together we just came together as natural as the day is long it wasn't there was no need to no need for pretense no need for anything it's i'm here to help you and what can we do you know dad was grateful we had a lot of laughs you know at one point when he was going to and from the hospital i I mentioned this story once before, but I, <laughs> we were, we were going back and forth to the hospital and frankly, they kind of ran out of things medically to do. So they'd get into these, you know, there'd be these psychological lectures and so forth. And at one point they had a, it, they were running out of routines and they thought that they would construct a day to inform the prisoners who had been brought back to Balboa about the cultural changes in America during the time they were away. And, you know, this had to do with hippies and drugs and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. And the guys would sit there and sort of look at one another and kind of arch their eyebrows and say, this is what we missed. You know, <laughs> it's okay. You know, we were busy. At one point I went in after that session, I think, and, and mom and I were up in mom and dad's bedroom and dad was in his closet. And we heard him banging around out there, in there and he put on this pair of you know, big pair of poplin pants with a Hawaiian shirt and a and a fedora, and he came dancing, doing a sort of a stiff legged dance out of the bathroom, and he said, "Okay, Jimmy, I'm ready to go. This new Navy lifestyle, I really dig it." Uh, <laughs> we all just, you know, kind of laughed, and and but you know, those days were filled with these sort of. <laughs> you know, wonderful moments of, of, of fun and laughter and reacquaintance. And it was pretty natural, I think. Hmm. It wasn't true in many households. We did have the benefit, Justin, of having been together for years before this happened. And I think that was a benefit. And that's part of why we were able to sustain what we're able to sustain. Yeah, I think it was much more difficult for a lieutenant or a lieutenant JG who'd just been married and had one child and was shot down after five years of being with uh, less than that in some cases. Mm -hmm. Those those were harder. I think it was much harder to, to keep things together in those circumstances. Some did, some did not. Some Some guys came home and there were some suicides. Some, you know, some, some made to look like accidents, but some guys had been through some things and some families had changed markedly. There was one family in particular where the, the attitude was when he came home, well, he has to know that the war he was fighting was wrong. And the family was dedicated to trying to re-educate him after he'd made all these sacrifices. And hmm. it was just too much. My gosh. So it, it, you know, the story has these happy endings. Uh, some not so happy. Some yeah. tough. Yeah, it's so awful how the suffering didn't end for a lot of people after they left the prison. Yeah. After they returned home, things just are not like they were when they left to begin with. True. I, I mean, will, that's not surprising, yeah. but it is awful. At one point, Dad was put with eleven other prisoners in a after they identified the leaders of the resistance. This was a little bitty prison that was attached to their Department of Defense, which was a, a big building next in, in outer Hanoi. But the, but the cells had always been there. These 
this compound of, of cells with leg irons and, and so forth and so on attached to the Department of Defense, if you can believe that. Hmm. And dad, dad said at one point, I mean, this was a real, they called it Alcatraz and it was, this was for the hard nuts. And a couple of things happened there that were instructive, not the least of which was one winter morning, dad was able to peek under his door because he heard somebody coming into the courtyard, but no doors were being opened and there were no whistles and no, no banging around as there usually was. And dad looked under the door and he, he peered out and he made out in the fog. He'd studied the Vietnamese leaders. And he said, there was Pham Van Dong, the premier of North Vietnam, standing in that courtyard. And he said, I, I think he was thinking about the years he had spent in those cells. So you, you had this sort of respect. I mean, a lot of the Vietnamese leaders then had been in just those cells under the direction of the French. So there was that. And I want to say that there was one fellow there in that prison. Everybody else had to leave, but Ron died there. He just died of a broken heart. You know, I've had dinner with his daughter. That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. But he just, I mean, there were guys that just, you know, they'd give up. They wouldn't eat. At one point, somehow, Ron flashed over to dad that he was happy that his wife and his family were living near a lake up in New Hampshire and things were going well for them. And he was so happy to hear that. And dad flashed over to Nels Tanner, who was uh, kind of on that string of, of rooms. And he said, hey, Nels, did, did any mail, any mail stores get mail? No cag, no mail. So Ron was making his peace with with the world. And he just sort of faded away. My gosh. Yeah. So for all this bravery and chutzpah and, and secret codes and so forth, there were people that paid a very, very tragic price. I really admire those families that carried on after that. Yeah, I just I just don't know how they can do it. It's you know, I can talk about it, I can read about it and that sort of thing, but I, I can't really understand it having not been through that, not just for a short period of time, but for year on end, like like so many guys were. Yeah. Nor, neither can I. I just, you know, I, I I talk about it rarely, but in situations like yours where there seems to be some interest about some of the activity, I'll open up. But how you, you just you can't explain it to people no, any more than you can than you can really explain what military life is like for families to those that have never experienced it. It's just mm-hmm. a different world, and I. I will say that I, I I worry for our country that the distance between those serving in in these capacities and the rest of the population that gulf seems to be growing wider and wider. We, certainly we, does. Certainly um, does. Sadly, so. So, Jim, your father. I mean, after all of this, after the debriefings and the recovery and the reunification with the family, he continued serving in the Navy for quite some time longer, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He retired as the president of the Naval War College, where he'd undertaken to build this course. Went off for an ill-fated few months as the president of the Citadel, which is a different story. (laughs) (laughs) I got a call from mom at one point, and I won't detail it all, but she, I get these, it it was late at night, and she said, Jimmy, you've got to get, I was living, we were living in Columbus, Georgia at the time, and the Citadel's in Charleston. She said, Jimmy, you've got to get over here. 
your father has rented a U-Haul truck and he's backed it up on the on the porch of the president's house and he's putting our furniture in it. (laughs) 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 He'd had a talk with some of the board members who didn't, you know, what happened was that some of the cadets were hazing some of the other cadets and in walked a senior who was drunk and had a gun. Dad had him in his office the next day and did what I think he should have done. And he said, okay, you, 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 and you, you go pack your things. You're off. You get out. You're, you're kicked out. You, 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 and you, you go, you, you know, you're going to make amends and you're going to try to make this. And the dad only, it was only two and a half hours later, dad got a call from the chairman of the board saying, well, Admiral, you may not know how we do things here in South Carolina. <laughs> Some of those boys are sons and daughters of, hmm. and <laughs> Dad didn't even argue. He just thought, "I, you know, this is not the world for me. I'm not going to wow. make political allowances for kids that might endanger the lives of others." He said, "He said, and he said, I've got experience with that. Nobody else working here has experience with that. So I <laughs> right, think I'm able right. to make the right call." But yeah, and then he went from there to Hoover at Stanford. There was a long wait in between, but he went mm-hmm. to Hoover, which was just the right place for him at the. At, at, at the think tank, then a very small think tank, now in a very elaborate operation. Mm-hmm. I was just looking online a couple of days ago, and I think that the, the Hoover Institute has some of the letters from your mom on display right now, don't they? Is that still ongoing, to your knowledge? Could be. They've got their archives there, so that would make yeah. sense. Um, yeah, I think they have got, like a temporary exhibit right now, maybe? Could be. You know, that's the kind of thing that could go on, Justin, and I... I wouldn't know about it. Mm. <laughs> you're, you're telling me something. Okay. And but okay. I, I've, I've been down in those files and I've looked through them all. I mean, I don't think there are any surprises in there for me. Yeah, I'll have to but, look again, certainly. But I was I was amazed at the idea that we can actually go see these letters that were such an incredibly closely guarded secret and so important to your family and to the, the well, effort but to not, learn about the POWs as yeah. well. We could just go see them. Well, you can read those letters and never even get a whiff of secret communication. Mm. <laughs> They're right there. But I think I think the more the letters that impress people are the ones that Dad was writing in prison. That little nub of a pen and that you know that ink going across, and he made the letters as small as he could to get as much down as he could. So, oh yeah. But there are, yeah, there's a healthy correspondence that went on there that I think helped some folks. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. Yeah. So, wow. So later on, I think we talked earlier. There was some pushback from people within the government, I guess, about your dad's memoirs and about some of the things that he stated, including the, the yeah. Gulf of Tonkin incident. <laughs> so can you talk about that a little bit? Just a little bit. Yeah. Dad and mom and dad wrote a book in love and war. Mom was sure they wanted to write the first book because and she said later, she said that was not very smart. She, she read other books that she found were better. She thought people had taken more time. In the first chapter of that book, Dad describes the Gulf of Tonkin episode, and basically he de- he never says nothing happened. He says a couple of guys from the Pentagon came to interview him and Wes McDonald, and they said, "We're and I'm sorry to use this language, but one of them one of one of the guys was the folks who met him from the two ships thought he looked like a bookie. He was an operative in Washington, and he said, "Listen, we've flown halfway around the world. We're we've been." brought out here for one reason. Were there any fucking boats out there the other night or not? And Dad and Wes looked at one another and shook their heads and said, no boats. And in the book, Dad said, I could have written the, written the whole 
sequence of the war right there, sending a couple of guys out to ask the question, the honest question about whether there was a real provocation or not was an indicator that the whole war was going to be a mess. Mm. Then when they wrote that in the book, and I think this is what you're, you're, you're looking to, there was upheaval in bureaucratic Washington that someone who was actually on the scene had the temerity to tell the truth about that night because people's careers had been staked on the viability and validity of those of that provocation. The fact is that the next day, dad led the raid that was supposedly a, a retribution for that attack on the high seas. And... <laughs> Ho Chi Minh could have stand, stood up and bowed in square after that attack and said, a day that will live in infamy. I mean, the story writes itself oh, man. because yeah. there was there yeah. was just as much expectation and provocation involved in that attack as there had been in Pearl Harbor. It was just, it was mind blowing how the bureaucrats in Washington wanted this war. And it, if when you read the history, it's, it's hard for me to read, but it's obvious that they were orchestrating this for months ahead of time. And that, that night provided them with an opportunity to make enough stuff up that they could launch attacks. And we were committed. After the fifth, hey, a young, a young Lieutenant JG named Sather, his, his plane was shot down and he was killed. And up north, Ev Alvarez had bailed out over Port Walut while making a run from the constellation. So they had one man dead and they had one man who was in prison there. And I'm, I'm not sure it ever crossed their minds that that would lock us into that war. Because hmm. once you get guys on the ground in the North and they're in prison, you're stuck. <laughs> I yeah, hope we remember yeah. that because you're stuck. I mean, but people, the, the bureaucracy in Washington, when he wrote that truth, literally rose up and uh, dad left me a calendar on which he'd kept the dates and times of the calls. And it culminated with William Casey as the director of the CIA saying to dad that he thought he was going to recall him to active duty for the express purpose of court martialing. And dad simply, simply said, I really just don't think you want to do that. And I don't think you can. He said, I've got too many people that know the right side of this story. And, and, I don't think you want to get into a situation where I'm punished for telling the truth 20 years after the fact. I think the American people deserve to know when we're right and when we're not. And that night, we were not right. Man, oh man. <laughs> so, right. well, the torture never stops. That's my motto for it. I mean, you know, yeah. if you're not going to be curled up in a ball in a prison in, a, in an archaic, terrible situation, the 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 boys and girls in Washington have a different way to help you feel even worse. Mm. Well, <laughs> so. I, I have to imagine that those threats were a little bit empty because there was probably not much they could do to him that had not already been done to him by others. And, yeah. No, no, it was an expression of indignation and the threats yeah. were supposed to, you know, make you, make you sit up and say, well, what can I do to make it up to you? Well, that was not going to come from Jim Stockdale. <laughs> he, he knew, he knew too well what had happened. So anyway, for what it's worth, that's a little uh, life lesson for, I, for the folks um, who think that telling the truth is going to win you praise and win friends and influence people, not necessarily <laughs> when policies prescribed before the reality can 
catch up with it. So, oh, man. Amazing. Yeah. Your dad was a great American, Jim. He certainly was. Thank you, Justin. I think he'd, he'd appreciate that, that folks like you are still trying to take some lessons from his life. I'm grateful, too. It's interesting. I don't think you really can't describe for audiences that have had no exposure to military family life, what goes on. And I know this is kind of an, a little bit of an extraordinary story, but the, you know, the simple moving around, the pressures, the pulls, the, the tears that come up, we need to do better by our military families. That's all. I just think there was, you could have, you could have helped a lot of folks keep their act together at that point. If you'd been committed as committed to the families as you were to your lie, that would have been better to at least, because uh, there's a lot of, a lot of sad stories that evolved when guys came home and children were missing or families had fallen apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it really is indescribable. It is indescribable. And for that, I'm sure that they were longing for and pining for something completely different than what they got in many cases and to come to not be able to come home again after they left and after they, what they imagined it's, is it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. But that's part of it. And, and I, I will say that for many families went on to just live surprising and wonderful lives and didn't miss a pickup just kept on going and that's i think i think that's a lesson in itself too that not a lot of over description not a lot of cataloging of past emotions let's just love one another and move on mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so anyway what a story my gosh Well, Jim, thank you so much. This has been really incredible. I'm curious, what are you working on now? Do you still have any involvement in telling his story other than, you know, during interviews like this? Do you have any other projects in the work at the moment? Well, I mentioned the Naval Academy. There is a a large statue of dad on the Naval Academy grounds and a previously unnamed, it's the Stockdale Center for for Ethical Leadership on the Naval Mm -hmm. Academy. And I spend time there working with some of the some of the midshipmen and, and some of the instructors, they're curious about dad and who he was other than what they read in books. The Naval War College, I, I, I try to help with that course when I can. Just wonderful people there who sustain that tradition. And I'm trying to write now. I'm 73, Justin, so it's <laughs> maybe a little late. But I, I think there's a story about the American families that survived that if we strip away the heroic motif, those guys, they're very, they shrug off that hero label. They were just doing what they were doing. Most of the descriptions and the narratives about the stories of those families extol virtue and have happy endings. There's a counter narrative there about, about what it, what it does to, to the families that, that endure it. So I'm trying to write about that, but that's kind of tough to get, get down. Anyway, that's what I'm working on. Okay. Wonderful. Do you have a, 
I don't want to hold you to a timeline or anything, but I mean, in the next couple of years, you think that might be ready for publication because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, I'm I'm actually, uh, I'm not, (laughs) I'm trying to work, I'm trying to find somebody who can help me with publishers and lawyers and that kind of thing, because I think I've got some product working out and it's not lost on me that um, on August 4th, um, 2024, that'll be the 60th anniversary of our descent into difficulty. Just a yeah. thought. I don't know if Absolutely. I'll get there or not, but that's kind of a target. Okay. I'll, yeah, let, that's, you, that's I'll, I'll let you know. How's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We should absolutely stay in contact after this. That'd be wonderful, Jim. Fair enough. Thank okay. you. Well, thank you so much. Do you have like a, a public profile, like a social media, anything like that? If people want to yeah, connect you with you or follow your story? I'm trying to get off of LinkedIn. Try that. That's a difficult thing to do. I just, I don't, (laughs) I'm not much of a social uh, media uh, creature. No, there's not a space. I'm easy to look up, easy to find. Most folks can. I do have a site that I started some years ago, jimstockdale.com. But all I've gotten to publish on that are my childhood memories of mom and dad. Every once in a while, I'll get a lovely letter from someone who's logged onto that. And they say, where's the rest of the story? And I, I <laughs> wish, I wish I had the talent and the ability to uh, put something up that's, that's different and helpful. We'll see what happens. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. I'll check it out myself. Jimstockdale.com. Well, yeah, Jim, thanks so a lot. Nice. This has been incredibly illuminating and emotional as well. And it's just been a stunning story about you and your whole family. And I really appreciate you taking the time to tell it to us today. Thanks, Justin. All right. Take care. Pleasure. Bye. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.